0: committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org.
2: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is author, educator, and environmental activist, Susan Hand Shetterly. Her book, Settled in the Wild, won the Maine Literary Award for Best Nonfiction from the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance, and that was in 2011. She's the author of an essay collection called The New Year's Owl and several children's books, including her book about forests called Shelterwood. Her newest book is Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. An excerpt from the book appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Susan hens welcome to Essential Conversations.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
2: Well, I'm interested to see where this conversation goes, because I got to tell you, I'm going to say something I never imagined myself saying, and that is, you made me care about seaweed. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is your attraction to seaweed? What, what, what led you to write this book?
1: Well, here, here's the story in a nutshell. Is um, I consider myself an essay writer, although I worked for Maine Times, which is no no longer exists, but there was this wonderful newspaper where I wrote essays and also did interviews, and they were all on subjects of wildlife and wild land. But um, so my interest is. That in wild systems, anyhow, and so I was putting together what I thought was a very interesting new book of essays for and my um, uh, agent said to me when she listened, she was kind of quiet. then she said, um, "One of your essays is going to be about a woman harvesting seaweed." And I said, "Well, I thought that was a good idea." And she said, "Why don't you write a whole book about seaweed?" Which I thought was a crazy idea. And so I called my son, who does editing. He's also a writer. And I said, You'll never guess uh, what I was just told. He said, Mom, if your agent tells you that, you should at least spend some time um, examining it. So I began to look around and did some reading. And all of a sudden, it became just. Fabulous. I mean, it was deep. It had committed people in the, in it. It had wonderful science, a lot of wildlife, and the whole st- and also history, human history, because um, many cultures have used seaweed. And so, my book has, I think, only one recipe. It's an odd book. No um, photographs seaweed, but it tells, it tries to tell the story of seaweed, wildlife, and people. And I became enthralled. I'm still enthralled.
2: Well, you know, I was, I mean, it's not the kind of topic that I'm normally drawn to. And I mentioned (laughs) to my wife that you and I are going to be talking, and I said, we're talking about this book about seaweed, and she got so enthusiastic. She says, oh, I love seaweed. I said, oh, really? This is news to me. Why?" Why do you care about seaweed? So, at least, you know, there's got to be other people out there who who are interested in this. If you have a copy of the book available, and I'm assuming you do, I just want you to read the closing paragraph of the prologue. So, if you just read that to us, and I want to ask you a question.
1: Sure. This book is about seaweeds and seaweed harvesting. It is also a collection of stories about individual people who work and live at the shore and what they have shared with me of their lives. And it is about wildlife, fish, birds, snails and clams, the tiny scuds, and the big eagle throwing its dark shadow across the bay. They teach me about what's worth saving.
2: So first I had to look up what a tiny scud was. <laughs> the only scuds I know were missiles. But I, I want to know what, you know, I, mean, I, I love the, this line. They teach me about what's worth saving. So, I mean, the whole book is about that. And I, I, I have a lot of other questions that I want to get to. But in a nutshell, so what what is worth saving? What did you get from that?
0: That
1: is the most wonderful question. And it seems to me that that was what the journey was to find out what was worth saving. And if you go to these different people who are specialists in what they love to do and what their work is along the shore, they tell you what's worth saving and they don't all say the same thing. But what I think I have learned, um, and I'm sort of pulling away from this book. In other words, it's done. I'm beginning to realize that. So I'm trying to figure out what the book is really out there on its own. But for me, it taught me about wild systems and the complication of them and how we go in and we can break or alter things and we don't even know it and how much more there is to learn. Um, and that's what I learned about seaweed, is that there is a ton of things that seaweed can do for us, for our health, um, for all kinds of products we use it for. And also, it's essential to wildlife. And it, it isn't just in the shallows. It's also up on the beaches and sometimes too much on the beaches, and it's way out in the Gulf, you know, or in the deeper water. And so it's always giving something to somebody somewhere. And uh, I find that fascinating.
2: I had no idea until I read the book, I and mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry, seaweed harvesting, and seaweed is in, I mean, I think you're right, somewhere, you can't go through your day without encountering seaweed.
1: I don't think you can. It's startling. We've been eating it and not paying much attention. And when I started writing this book, which is five years ago, I thought, nobody's going to be interested in seaweed. In five years, it's become a really hot topic. I mean, I turn on the news and at least once a week, I hear something about seaweed, either good or bad about seaweed, you know?
2: So you have to tell me what what station you're listening to, because I don't. <laughs> but, but I'm glad someone's talking about something other than the, the president and politics. So, so seaweed is a good alternative. You know, there's the the book is about seaweed. Okay, fair enough. But it's also about a lot of very interesting people who are are associated with the seaweed industry or the science. And there was this guy in the book. Dr. Brian Beale, that I mean he's this uh, he, he calls his work "Applied Marine Research," and he seems to straddle and if I got it wrong, please correct me, but he seems to straddle the world of protecting the seaweed and yet uh, understanding and honoring the, the harvesting, the industry aspect of it. T- tell us about, about Dr. Beale and you know what, what his work is.
1: Yes,. Dr. Beale, Brian Beale, uh, grew up in Washington County, which is a very, very poor county, and he grew up by the water, and so there was, you know, a lot of fishing, that and a lot of uh, digging for clams, digging for worms, um, and that's what he saw. Um, he uh, studied. And had the opportunity to leave Washington County and to go somewhere else. He is very accomplished. He's won all kinds of awards, um, and uh, he has his PhD, obviously. And he he really could have gone pretty much anywhere. He came back to Washington County because he wanted to um, restore some of the fisheries that were damaged, and to make uh, life livable for people who are living quite quite on the edge and he's devoted his life to it so as an applied scientist he's looking at the ocean as um, how to um, supply things that are good for people and continue to supply them not um, not take too much, not obliterate a harvest or something, but the pure scientist, somebody more like uh, Robin Seeley, um, she's studying a specific species of um, periwinkle, and her interest is in the structure of the seaweed rather than the bulk of it. And so they don't necessarily agree. I don't think they profoundly disagree. And they both love where they work, and they love the work. But what I've tried to do in this book is to bring in different voices, and I don't choose among them. It, I let them all um, say what they believe. And what I do trust about them is that they're smart, they're honest, and they love the work they
2: do. Well, I think you have the same attitude toward the reader. I mean, because you don't. it's is not a polemic. I mean, this is you're allowing these people to speak their truths, and I think your assumption is that the reader is also smart. And if they're gonna, you know, engage with a book uh, on seaweed, they're they're committed, you know, to take a, a deep dive. No pun intended into into what this is.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for path of the butterfly. A weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness walking and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org/thrive.
2: But you also live on the coast. I mean, this is this is not simply an abstraction. I mean, all of your writing is about nature, I think. And and what uh, is there something that draws you to uh, coastal lands as opposed to? I mean, you've written about forests. I mean, uh, living in a in a forest is there something about living on the coast that really speaks to you?
1: Well, that's an interesting question, and here's an answer: is that. Um, When I was raising my kids, my husband and I moved to um, a 60 acre woodlot with a cabin on it. And we raised our kids with no electricity, (laughs) Um, running water, uh, telephone for a while. Then we got a phone. But um, we were back to the landers. And um, my reaction to being there was um, I think the same as my kids I mean, it was hard but it was also fascinating I mean, I learned about birds I became a wild bird rehabilitator for a while I learned as much as I could I loved the people down at the harbor because they were fishermen and you see I write a lot about the old-timey fishermen who didn't have all the fancy equipment um, And they knew things much differently than I did. I knew them sort of academically, and they knew things from experience. And I wanted some of that myself. And um, so that's what I got living in the cabin. And uh, my kids have grown up, and um, they think that was a wonderful time for them.
2: But now they live in a penthouse in Manhattan. and <laughs> <We're>
1: not, <right. laughs> not
2: quite, no. Oh, okay.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Let's, so let, let me ask you this. This is, may sound a little off the wall, but uh, the book made me think about this. So there, there are two creation stories in the book of Genesis. So we're going to talk Bible for a moment. There's, there's two creation stories in the book of Genesis. And the first one Humans are essentially an afterthought. The wild is already flourishing. The garden is growing. And the last thing that is created are people. And there's no purpose for but them.
1: Wasn't it because God was lonely?
2: Oh, well, it doesn't say that. That's, that's sort of just interpretation. No, the Bible just says, God says, let's make them. And they really have no purpose. So they end up, the commandment is, you know, be fruitful, multiply. And eventually, the way it's understood by most people is they end up domesticating the wild or even, even dominating the wild. Right. Then there's a second story in, this, in the uh, next chapter of Genesis where nothing is growing. And the first thing that happens is there's water is created and then people come after the water before anything else. And in that story, people are essential <laughs> to the wilderness. They're essential to the garden, to the wild that is about to be created. And the job is to tend whatever's growing, is to serve nature. It's to midwife um, nature's innate creativity. So I'm reading the book and in the closing paragraph of the book, I'm just gonna, because we we only have a few minutes left. I want to jump to the end of the book. In the closing paragraph of the book that starts out, the natural world is shifting. I think, and, and I want to explore this with you after we read it, but I think that this paragraph speaks to that issue of how we shift from being the dominating, the dominator species in Genesis, in the first story in Genesis, to being the, the midwife species in the second order. Can you read the, the closing paragraph in the, in the epilogue. in the epilogue?
1: Sure. The natural world is shifting, which means we need to hurry to fix what's broken and pay close attention to what's coming next. The wild must come first if we are serious about safeguarding a future to hand over to our children and our children's children. When we put wild systems first, we are passing on the gift of life to many species, including our own.
2: I love this idea of putting... The wild first. I don't see that happening. I don't, I mean, I, I read a lot of science fiction. Most of it now is dystopian. But when you look either movies or, or novels, nature is hardly there. It's just, you know, and there's some segment of the city where they have pods and they grow what people need to eat. But the world is either smog and covered and nothing can grow, or it's just completely covered in concrete, you know, with a tree every once in a while. So how do we get back to this notion of putting the wild first?
1: Well, there's a good question. And um, too bad we don't have a couple of hours to sit and talk (laughs) about this. But um, I have noticed that there are a lot of books coming out now, beautifully written books, urgent books, about Trying to enlist the reader or show the reader why it is important to take a look at this situation or that um, situation um, and the urgency of something wild that's outside our home. And I was just talking to somebody recently who had listened to a talk, and um, a survey had been done, and children spend about seven minutes outside a day generally um nobody's going to save what's wild if they only spend seven minutes and probably most of those minutes are walking to the car or the bus stop um we really do need to figure out what's valuable um i love what uh one of my people I interviewed said, Paul Molino he said, we don't know how to assess the value of species within their ecological communities, so we tend to think of them as worthless rather than priceless. And I think we're getting to a time now, especially with uh, global warming, the extinction of species, et cetera, in which we have a choice, don't you? And it, in a way, uh, that choice is just what you're talking about in Genesis. Are you picking the first story or the second?
2: Yeah, right. That's that's.
1: I, I kind of would like to go with the second.
2: <laughs> yeah, so would, so would I. I I don't. But you're still optimistic. I mean, you still think there's time for a choice. I I tend to be more pessimistic.
1: No, no, I'm not necessarily. Here's here's what I feel, and I bet you feel this way too. We may lose, but we're going to fight the good fight. Yeah. That's how I
2: feel. <laughs> so on that depressing note. <laughs> <we're> <laughs>
1: no, it's, it's the right fight, and you might as well take joy in it. I mean, I am a birder, and I every time I get down, I grab my binoculars. Well, not every time, but a lot. And I go out take a look at something that doesn't speak in a language that i understand and that doesn't look like me and it's fabulous i love it
2: so i i like this phrase that you know we're going to lose but we're going to fight the good fight anyway so when you say we're going to lose is it i mean some people say oh the earth oh if if oh, I thought you were. <laughs> we
1: may be losing. We may be losing, but the thing is, it's not. You don't pick what side you're on. Looking at the winners and the losers, you're. We're trying to do what's right as yeah. we see it.
2: Yeah. No, that and that's a that's a good place to end. That we're trying to do what's right as we see it. Uh, I guess hope enough people see it the way you see it, <laughs> so that what they when they do what's right. They're actually helping nurture the environment and and putting the wild first. Interesting conversation, thank you. Go ahead, finish up.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I think that if the wild is gonna be saved, it's going to need help from citizens, from people who care. And yeah. so, you know, that's what I think is important. And I've loved talking to you.
2: Thank you, I love talking to you as well. Our guest today was Susan Hand Shetterly. You can read an excerpt of her newest book, Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. For more information on her work, please visit her website, susanhandshatterly.com. Susan, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holy land hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami, thanks for listening.
0: Life is hard and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.